from the very beginning, we have said whatever we do is open to everyone, and not just refugees, um, but also for those who want to help by us or who need help by us. Hey, this is Zach. Welcome to Integration for Everyone, a podcast where I interview people in Germany to learn about their work with refugees. That was the voice of my guest, Christoph, from the organization Willkommen in Falkensee, which means welcome to Falkensee. It's a community organization that formed to assist refugees to settle into life in Germany. And as you heard, their mission is open to helping the community as a whole. Falkensee is a small city of about 40,000 people right on the northwest border of Berlin. And Christoph is a volunteer who helped to manage Velkommen in Falkensee. Uh, and as you'll soon hear, it's quite an active organization. Uh, Christoph and I spent a good bit of time discussing in the first half what activities the organization has taken on, which you'll hear is a pretty expansive list. And then we discuss a bit about what the organization has been doing in the COVID-19 pandemic. And then in the last half of our conversation, we talk a lot more about the uh, what guides the organization, kind of the philosophy and the lessons that they've learned over the last six years. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Christoph from Willkommen in Falkensee. It's really good to, to talk to you. And I've also looked at your, your website and it seems that uh, the organization's been really active and you guys do all sorts of different types of activities. As we've branched out uh, the first 12 or 18 months, were more or less fully dedicated to emergency arrival-related uh, issues, health. Yeah, could you highlight some of the, the programs that you've done, some of the you know, maybe the things that stand out to you? Yeah. Uh, where do I start? Um, <laughs> so um, the, the original early, what I call early arrival time, meaning uh, post-summer 2015, plus 18 months or so, was dedicated to enable people to settle in. Settling in doesn't mean into new apartments, not normally, unfortunately, but to settle into the new life here. So we had um, a dozen or so working groups. Um, let me see if I can all run them down for you out of memory because uh, none of them exists in the same shape and format these days. Um, we had a, a medical working group that looked after vaccinations, uh, took uh, account of health conditions uh, in the more complicated cases, looked after, for example, uh, recontinuing cancer therapy for those who had cancer but weren't treated in the last 12 months. Um, looked after pregnant women, children with traumatization that needed to urgently rest in some way or other. So medical issues in every shape and form. The second group looked after uh, setting up language, German language classes. The third one focused on providing child play activities, amongst others, to allow the mothers to do something by themselves and for themselves, not having to take care of children. Um, fourth one um, was a sports in general to organize a football um, soccer for Americans and all kinds of other sports activities so that people had something to do. Yet another one looked at uh, created uh, arts uh, excursions, arts and museum excursions for those who were interested entering into Berlin and cities beyond took people with an interest in cultural affairs to cultural places. 
We had a bicycle group that collected, donated bicycles, fixed them up, provided people with a uh, cheap means of transport. And I think in, in total, we fixed up a thousand bikes or so over the course of two years. We had a, a, a legal assistance group, um, mostly focused uh, on asylum request proceedings. We had a uh, an employment uh, group that looked after job opportunities. We had a housing group to uh, address landlords and the communication and also a motivational link between refugees seeking uh, accommodation and landlords having accommodation, but not sure if they wanted to uh, rent for the first time to a refugee who was not yet really settled in. And we had a, a kind of foster parent Godfathering group that train families to become foster parents of both minors and uh, above 18s. So essentially to provide family uh, companionship to those who wanted it. Then we had general counseling sessions with, by a team of, we called it Alltagslotsen. Not sure how that would translate into English. You know, Routine, uh, yeah, day, yeah, every yeah. Your, your your everyday routine. There's there's no such word in in the English language, to my knowledge, that fully reflects the meaning of the German word Alltag. But it, you know, everyday <laughs> routine comes most close to it. And these are the counselors who guided you as a refugee through German authorities, German behavior, uh, just the normal, every, what we take for granted every day, the unwritten rules that we take for granted, we try to translate and guide them through the thick of these unwritten rules. Right. There's a lot of things that, um, you know, somebody yeah. who lives in the country, uh, has lived here a long time, doesn't even have to think about. They just, you know, know, know the answer. <laughs> right. And so I, I think I forgot two or three but uh, no, this is basically what we did. Oh, yes, of course, we had um, communicators, uh, coordinators, who basically did nothing but roam through the refugee shelters and went from one person to the next, from one family to the next, and talked. Asked, you know, who are you? How are you? you know, How's your day today? Uh, what do you need? Here's our contact numbers, here's our contact data. Call us or write us, message us if you need something. And these communicators were basically the conduits from the new arrivals to our organization. So we said, you know, if, okay, if you have a health problem, then let me take you to the person who needs the medical working group. If you have a child that's looking for a place in school, let me take you to uh, the teaching group uh, and they will help you find the school place, etc. Yeah, that's really crucial, I think, because sometimes, you know, refugees might not speak up for what they need or not know what exactly it is that they're looking for. I think I saw on your website uh, a lot of references to a community space. I, is it called B84? Um, we created that to Two years into our activity, um, as it became clearer that uh, we needed a permanent uh, venue where events could take place, where counseling session uh, could take place, um, and that allowed us to offer a wide variety of sometimes cross-cultural, uh, transnational offerings. 
and also offerings dedicated to people from a particular region. Sometimes you know, we had special events for people of Kurdish origin coming from Iran. Important because they speak a, a Kurdish dialect called Sorani that is not widely understood and that is using Arabic uh, letters and is not understood by the Kurds in Syria nor understood by the Kurds in Turkey, just to give you an example. And um, that place still exists now because of COVID, hasn't been in operation for the last eight weeks. Um, we're slowly resuming operations with a new safety concept. Yeah, that's understandable. I think I saw also that um, you're organizing from that space to do like grocery um, pickup and things like that for the community. Yes, that is what we you know, offer to the wider community, not just the refugee community. And, and that is a good example to explain our everything for all philosophy as one of the pillars, the guiding principles. From the very beginning, we have said whatever we do is open to everyone, and not just refugees, um, but also for those who want to help by us or who need help by us. So now it is uh, refugees helping German citizens get along with the lockdown, uh, with the implications of the lockdown. Yeah, I think that's uh, that philosophy is really smart because it shifts the thinking you know you're not always doing something for refugees but they're actually part of the community and they can give back as well yes. as receive services how, how long has the organization been the organization active? has been around since uh five and a half years fall of 2014 is the official uh inauguration date not knowing what would happen in 2015 but just yeah yeah guessing that it was a gut feel because if you look at the numbers of uh, refugees crossing the Mediterranean, those were swelling in 2014. Um, no one could have predicted uh, what ha would happen in 2015. No one could have that predicted in 2015. We were all very clear that refugee numbers would significantly increase at you know, rather sooner than later. That it would happen 10 months after we founded the organization is something we cannot claim to know. I'm sure that puts you in a position of feeling more prepared for um, for the why, the large yeah. number of people that started yeah. coming. And it's a community spirit. Uh, in 2013, uh, the community of Feigenzee decided to build a refugee home. Uh, that happened to be ready in June of 2015, just when the numbers were increasing. But that you know, took two years to build it. Um, and again, in 2013, it was a gut feel, collective gut feel, uh, mm -hmm. and the willingness to spend by the community. So that's quite remarkable. That's, yeah, that's interesting. When I was talking to Elizabeth in Dalgo, that was something that she said, you know, in 2015, they got a lot of enthusiasm to help people, but then it took, it took a year to build right. the, the housing for the refugees. And so by the time yes. they actually arrived, a lot of the enthusiasm had mm -hmm. kind of worn off. And that was still makeshift. That was containers, within containers. Right, exactly. So you have actually a, a, a housing Yes. Units. Okay. Wow. Yes. Yes. A real brick building. So since you've been doing this for um, five and a half years now, uh, looking back, what do you think are some of the more important or more effective types of programs to have? Uh, you know, I'm thinking about like language or um, things like that. What do you think? What are the lessons that you've learned? What's most important to do? There, there are several angles on this. A, uh, in the beginning, health and language are by far 
the most important issues to be taken care of. Health, because as the adrenaline subsides in you know in a human being's body, the adrenaline while fleeing, the various body aches that are suppressed by adrenaline come to the surface. And as you know, you could watch it day after day. People became sick with illnesses that they couldn't possibly have acquired in the few weeks they've been in Germany, which were old illnesses, and they began to become aware. And some of them were uh, acute ones. And of course, prevention, vaccinations were also medical issues. And then language, uh, you know, to make sure people could communicate not just in their own communities that they may or may not have brought with them, but also with their uh, you know, new fellow citizens. And then the next ones, yeah, in the two next ones to me, are um, my mantra, I wasn't successful in making it our official motto. My mantra is I want to make as many people as I possibly can. I want to turn them into taxpayers, people paying taxes and social security. It may sound primitive, but what it means is if someone is paying taxes, then they have a job. They very likely can't communicate in the local language. They are very likely not or no longer governed by trauma, but can integrate into a new team, into a new workspace they haven't been used to in the past. And they will be able to support themselves and families. If you peel the onion on the paying taxes issue, that brings you back to all these uh, survival skills uh, across all generations, across all sexes. Um, and then you can, you know, that brought us back to okay, if we want people to pay taxes, uh, they need to have proper job qualifications, they need to have decent language capabilities, not just coffee shop language. They, uh, the women need to have an opportunity to not always have to care for their children, if there are children in the family, but to be free to learn the language and to get an education by themselves, which is, not, which is easier said than done in an Islamic uh, society setting. There need to be special programs for those who are not able to read and write, as opposed to classes of language and university preparation for those who are intellectually gifted, by the way, was also one of our focus points. It makes me think about, you're kind of already de defining my next question is what is your definition of integration and, and who is integrated? Talk about that way, who's integrated? Yeah, I think that's such an, it's a loaded <laughs> word. It's kind of an interesting yes. word, but um, yeah. how did you define it uh, in your organization? How do you think about it? Yeah, our goal as being, we want people to, um, have the opportunity to participate in their what I would call their their new environment, the, the local society. They don't have to participate. You know that's the uh, difference for me between integration and assimilation. Um, assimilation means you've let go of your own cultural past and have adopted the ways of people around you. That's not what we want. Um, integration to us is able to participate. You do participate to some extent, not 100% of your life. You are capable of handling your life yourself. You know what you don't know, roughly speaking at least. You know when you need help and lead, lead a, a life of self-determination. Um, I'm also curious about the uh, involvement of the community. Um, mm -hmm. How were you able to get a lot of people to volunteer and help? Yeah. Yes, good point. You asked earlier what, what was important. Um, Broad involvement. Um, and so not just communication, but involvement. So uh, 
in late 2014 and in the entirety of 2015, we, I think uh, over that time span, we had spoken several times with all, and I mean all community groups, be it the denominational church-related uh, communities, be it societies, clubs, and your, your local sports clubs, uh, the fishing club, uh, whatever institutional agglomeration there was, we will have spoken, we would have spoken with them, uh, try to feel them out, how pro or uh, against refugees were they, uh, if they were, if there was an, you know, a pro sentiment, we try to motivate them to participate, to contribute. If there was an anti-refugee sentiment, we tried to arrange meeting opportunities, so to allow people to, in a way, politely force people to meet uh, refugees, which in the early days of our organization was difficult because we, in a way, there weren't enough refugees to fill all the, you know, the needs for people to get in touch with someone. In you know, late 2015, that wasn't a problem anymore. Everyone in the city, after one year of uh, you know, our existence, would have heard of us several times, would have been talking to us several times, would have participated to some extent in one of our events. We had welcome cafes uh, every month or so, and uh, we would organize um, a, a snowball type of communication system when the refugee shelters officially open. So we first started with a Con almost conspirative five to ten people uh, group of and selected carefully selected people who we know were constructive explain what would happen in and around the refugee shelter after these ten to find another ten each uh, for the next meeting and uh, you know, from there we took it and I think eventually we spoke to about two thousand people face to face uh, around the refugee shelters that was the a campaign to make sure there were no eruptions of anti-refugee sentiment around the refugee shelters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you were very proactive. Maybe that did help because there are other other cities have definitely um, experienced anti-refugee demonstrations mm -hmm. and uh, even violence in some cases. Yeah. Well, there were anti-refugee activities here too. There were yeah. death threats uh, against the leadership of our group. So. So, uh, to be sure, uh, we had all the ugly stuff too, but it didn't take place publicly. But I'm also kind of curious about your leadership and, and who, uh, you know, is, is the leader of your organization paid or do they volunteer their time? All volunteers. Um, there's one, per, well, there are three people that are paid. One is the coordinator or the boss of our uh, of 84. Uh, that person is paid out of donations that come from the group. And we have two people who are employed uh, within the German Bundesfreiwilligenprogramm, you know, the, the gap year, social year type of program. I think we have it in the States as well, but under a different name, who are, you know, it would be a doctor who fled from Chechnya uh, trying to you know, make his way into German society or a, a Moroccan Arabic speaking uh, elementary school teacher who wants to get German language training before she goes back to Morocco. Lovely people. Uh, and that's uh, who, who we employ on a part-time basis. Yeah. Everybody else is volunteer. Okay. Yeah. I ask because, um, you know, I saw this also in the United States and in other 
organizations in Germany that a lot of the time, the activities of the organization like yours all fall on one person and they can only do so much. And then when that person gets tired and decides to retire from the activities, the organization yeah. tends to also kind of go with them. But oh, good point. Yes. It sounds like it's a, it's a bit more self-sustaining in your case. Yes. Well, there are probably roughly a hundred people who are active in some way or other. Um, we retain a grassroots uh, democratically government uh, decision-making body uh, that meets every month which is the core group of the 20 most active people. Um, and then there are literally dozens around who do a particular thing. So as one of us who repeatedly goes to concerts, organizes uh, donated tickets, and then takes uh, 10 or so participants, each uh, of the wider refugee group, invites them, takes them to that particular concert. And there are you know, children's uh, group led by currently female students. There are homework assistance groups typically led by uh, senior high schoolers, uh, junior students. Uh, there are individuals who support and accompany, let's say, five to ten families and look after their rental, landlord issues, etc. And so on. So uh, the, the, the rule is you can basically do everything as long as you do it. You cannot propose that the group does something. You can propose an activity and do it. And, and then the space is open to you. <laughs> that's, that's very wise. <laughs> I should say the city of Falkensee provides us with funds to rent the space in which we are operating the B84. So there's basically no fixed cost unless we choose to have fixed costs. Only a few people know our um, organization design criteria. We basically run this volunteer, not-for-profit organization like a corporation, like a business. You find projects that are carefully monitored and controlled, and if they fail, these projects are killed. We have, in a way, we have departments. We don't call them departments. It's a working group. We have decision-making processes. They are plenary sessions, coordination meetings, etc., even have decision makers. It's not always democratic grassroots. We do have you know, uh, situations where we need to make a decision and we've set up a mechanism by which we authorize people to make certain decisions. We have, uh, we've clustered our activities on the one hand into service delivery teams, coordination uh, mechanisms, and uh, expert resource team. And again, you will find none of this published but we are, you know, we are effectively uh, run like you would run a medium-sized company. Um, maybe the last thing is uh, we purposefully invite people and purposefully communicate with people who oppose everything we do. So I, in fact, I just came from a meeting with one of the administrative heads of the Landkreis Falkensee, who hates refugees because they cause him so much pain. So, because we want to find out, you know, how is this guy thinking? What's this guy thinking? What can we do to you know, make him more open on the one hand, but also to understand how do we organize? We would invite political parties that typically happens during election campaigns. We would typically also invite those political parties who are not necessarily the biggest fans of migration uh, in order to understand, you know, what are their views and uh, how can we away on their 
uh, resistance against maintaining an open society. It's this uh, this openness to contrarian views that I think keeps us honest. Yeah, this type of organization, maybe you don't want to be too political, but you still have to understand the politics. And Yeah, we are strictly apolitical, in fact. Uh, but right. yes, we absolutely possibly have to understand what politicians around us are thinking and do. And that, by the way, allows us to have members whose political party membership spans the entire German political party spectrum, with only the exception of the NPD, the National Democratische Partei Deutschlands. We do have an AFD member in our ranks, have CDU members, we, I would say, obviously have SPD and Linke and Grünen members, but uh, you know, it's this being apolitical, uh, but having a political agenda. Uh, that uh, allows us to be open to everyone. Okay. Yeah, thank you again. Um, so, well, you're welcome. Yes, I, I really appreciate it. And it's nice to hear about an organization being successful and, and also giving back to the community and, and serving everyone. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for finding us. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for coming on. Well, thanks again, Christoph, for taking the time to talk with me about Willkommen in Falkensee. I'd like to point out just a couple of quick thoughts on what I thought were some of the important lessons. And the comment that I think I found the most interesting was about creating taxpayers. Now, this is kind of a sentiment that you might hear often about refugees from people who are opposed to resettlement. They might say that refugees are a drain on the system, or that they should become self-sufficient as soon as possible. But the approach really matters. Christoph and his organization use this framework as a way to say, okay, what are the most important things that could get in the way of someone being self-sufficient? And let's address those things at the basic level. Helping a refugee reach self-sufficiency is great because it helps them to regain a sense of control over their lives that they likely had been missing for a very long time. Um, another lesson I took from this was the amount of work that they put into getting the community on the same page and involved. And now it's easy to take for granted, I think, just how helpful trust and familiarity in the community is. It makes inevitable difficulties or misunderstandings between newcomers and the host community much easier to absorb in a big picture sense and then to move forward. Finally, what really struck me was the organization of the organization. Everything seemed well-planned and intentional, and it's clear that they were able to achieve what they did by making sure that there was a decision-making process and a way to identify needs and match them to resources and to people's time. Well, I hope you were able to take something away from this conversation. I definitely learned quite a bit and enjoyed greatly talking to Christoph and learning about his organization. If you'd like to learn more about Willkommen in Falcon Z, Visit their website. It is in German, so you'll have to translate with Google Translate. Or contribute to the conversation. Just visit my website at www.integrationforeveryone.com forward slash Falkensee. That's spelled F-A-L-K-E-N-S-E-E. -E. You can also email me your feedback directly at feedback at integrationforeveryone.com. This has been a conversation on the Beyond Integration podcast. Until next time, bye-bye.